Thank you for the invitation to be with you this morning. I need to learn a few things about you. If you're willing, how many will acknowledge that you've lived pretty much all of your life in the Pacific Northwest? Impressive group. The most sanctified of all. You don't need sunshine in your life. <laughs> Californians? Yeah, they're everywhere. Um, <laughs> people from some other place west of the Mississippi. Oh, the elite few. East of the Mississippi. All right. Any Illinoisans? <laughs> Hallelujah. Any New Yorkers? No one? Oh, one, sorry. I suspect, looking out at you, that there are a number of you who can actually remember 1969. And maybe the rest of you learned about it in school history class. Now, most people remember 1969, if for anything, for the moon landing. Neil Armstrong and company, amazing. Or if you were from the eastern seaboard in particular, you might remember that was the summer of Woodstock. My... uh, Wife was from New York, and she jokes uh, that at age 14, her parents locked her in her house so she wouldn't be tempted to go because her sister, who was nine years older, was already there 40 miles away. But if you were from Illinois or New York, I'm the Illinoisan in my family. 1969 was memorable for a completely different reason. It was the historic collapse of the Chicago Cubs in the National League pennant race. Let me read you some statistics that are too depressing for me to memorize. By mid-August, the Cubs had a nine-and-a-half game lead over the New York Mets, only to lose 17 of their last 25 games while the Mets went on a tear and became known as the Amazing Mets and won the division title by eight games. It was the first of several subsequent somewhat less dramatic collapses that led to many people entitling the Cubs the lovable losers. I honestly did not think I would see what happened in 2016 happen in my lifetime, a Chicago Cubs World Series championship. If my life were made up only of sports, 
I could have said with aged Simeon, Lord, now let me depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. (laughs) But I won't say that. I do think, though, that as a 14-year-old, with too much time on my hands, too young to legally work, and my parents were too nice and didn't give me enough chores so that I could either watch on television or listen on the radio to every game during that historic collapse, that it profoundly defined my psyche for a long time. For those of you who have ever listened to a game on radio, you actually can still do it. Some of you may know that. There's a dynamic that's not there on TV, it's not there online, it's not there in person, and that is there's no way to anticipate what's coming next. It's a three and two count. What's... There's no visual clues at all. And so I learned during August and September of 1969, that the only way to cope with listening to a baseball game was when the other team was up to assume that everybody was going to get on base and be pleasantly surprised whenever it didn't happen. And that when my team was up, it was going to go horribly and be pleasantly surprised when it didn't happen. And I suspect, I've never asked a trained psychologist about this, but I suspect that there have been a lot of things in life ever since where I have defaulted to that approach. I'm hoping for something wonderful, but dare I get my hopes up? your glass half empty or half full. I think more often than not, more often than I should have, my glass was half empty. When I was in high school, I was uh, a good student, but I was a mediocre athlete and my wife looks at my pictures and she says I looked like Napoleon Dynamite. Um, I did not have the things that made me popular among the cool kids of the day. And, and being a good student actually was counterproductive because if you wanted to be popular, you didn't want to be too smart. I don't know if I was lovable, but I often felt like a loser. What about you? In 2023, let's talk about the present. (laughs) Recognizing that you're aging happens to everybody every day. (laughs) But at some point, you start to realize aging means 
not being able to do quite as much, quite as well physically, maybe mentally, maybe emotionally, as you did before. Maybe in a post-pandemic, post-recession, post-lots-of-things world, This isn't the world you hoped it would be by 2023. Your finances aren't where you hoped they would be. Some relationships aren't where you hoped they would be. Maybe you're young and just starting out and recognizing (laughs) there aren't the jobs for millennials and Gen Z that there were for their parents. And boy, it takes a lot to buy a house, especially in town. Am I a loser? A man in the Old Testament by the name of David, a very famous man, So famous, we don't even know if he had a last name. Well, actually, they didn't in those days. (laughs) David's son of Jesse, that's the closest it came. Is famous. Famous for being a great king. Famous for the united monarchy reaching its zenith in power and arguably in godliness in roughly 1,000 B.C. He's also famous for a little glitch, well, maybe a big glitch, (laughs) sinning with Bathsheba, sending her husband Uriah out to the front lines to be murdered, so he could have Bathsheba. And yet, still, the Bible can call him a man after God's own heart. He wrote a ton of psalms, and one of them is an amazing psalm of repentance after those events, Psalm 51. But what was David like as a kid? What was he like growing up? We don't have... A lot of information. But I'm going to suggest that there was a time in his life before he ever was king where he might well have felt like or actually even been a lovable loser. Our passage that we're looking at is 1 Samuel 16. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to it. I always prefer that because you get more context than just staring at slides. But if you don't, we've got slides. 1 Samuel 16, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. 
But Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears about it? He will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? How many is he supposed to have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. If we had started the passage a little bit earlier in 1 Samuel, we would have read that Samuel already knew and had already told Saul that unlike the original plan, he was not going to be the father of a dynasty. He was not going to live as long as he would have otherwise. He would be killed midlife. And uh, the throne would not pass to any of his heirs. And that because of his disobedience to the Lord. But Samuel didn't say and Presumably, God had not told him when the transition would occur. And as it turns out, Saul is on the throne for many years still. Now, that's awkward. The reigning king, having been publicly told that God is not pleased with him, and one day the sword's going to fall... 
But meanwhile, life goes on as it did yesterday. Until God says to Samuel, it's time to anoint his successor. Now, if you listen to those 13 verses and were at all tempted to yawn, you are not thinking like an ancient first century Israelite. This is high drama. We need um, somewhat spooky, somewhat mournful, somewhat dramatic music in the background, but not much in a major key. If you want to make the movie out of it. This little episode is um, about what some literary critics would call an anti-hero rather than a hero. Oh, later he'll become a hero, but right now, in, in these 13 verses, almost in every verse or couple of verses, there is something that is backwards or upside down or not according to... Expectation. What am I talking about? You don't anoint a new king while the old rival king is still on the throne. This is not a setup for good things to happen. No wonder, Samuel says in verse 2, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. It involves a special sacrifice. But incognito. The Lord said, take the appropriate animals, go to Bethlehem, say you're offering a sacrifice, invite Jesse, a well-known, well-to-do leader with lots of kids, as we've seen. That's not what you did when you publicly declared you were going to have a sacrifice in a small village. It was for everybody. Nope. (laughs) Just Jesse. Or so it seems thus far. The elders of the town who you would approach as a courtesy to gain their permission for something that you as an outsider wanted to do were terrified. When was the last time you got an invitation to a party and your first reaction was terror? (laughs) This is upside down. If they suspected what Samuel was up to? Bethlehem was just five miles south of Jerusalem. Word travels. You don't keep news secret in a small town. Some of you have come from... Some of you may still live in one. You understand that dynamic? It's going to get back to Saul some way. Or maybe there was some other reason that... uh, Samuel came for a sacrifice, but if he wasn't doing it for the entire village, something was afoot. (laughs) 
As Sherlock would have said, the game's afoot, but we're not sure what the game is. Verse 5 tells us that the elders were also invited. And Jesse and his sons, but still nobody else. Not only do you not become afraid when you get a typical invitation to a party, you normally don't try to keep it secret. If you've lived close enough to other people, you know what happens when they have a party. (laughs) Well, Hilda, what time do you think they'll end? Do we get any sleep tonight? (laughs) It can be very annoying. A secret. How do you keep a party secret? And then uh, it turns out this is about anointing a successor and Samuel rejects the obvious candidate. Eliab, maybe the tallest, oldest, best looking, kind of like Saul had been. Oh yeah, we don't want to go down that track again. (laughs) But also... Shammah, Abinadab, the other unnamed ones. Why? Because the Lord looks on the heart. We could have just made the message about that one verse. The Lord looks on the heart. That's encouraging when we're sincerely doing something that we think is right and other people misunderstand us. But that's not encouraging when we're trying to get away with something. (laughs) The Lord knows. The Lord sees Rats. Can't hide anything from him. It really wasn't about anybody's looks outwardly. Apparently their hearts, Jesse's son's hearts, were not as right as they could or should have been. And so we get, it's almost a parade of seven sons and their rejection. I don't know how many daughters Jesse had, but this was an age where he started with sons first in inheriting a throne. And finally, the list is exhausted and, and Samuel is baffled and he asks Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? And I don't know. They had lots of kids in those days. It's probably a modern anachronism to me imagining Jesse going, How many did you want me to have? But he says, Yeah, there's there's one more. I didn't think you'd be interested. He's not really old enough, uh, not experienced enough, not particularly... Athletic, 
intellectual, doesn't have a cheerleader for a girlfriend, whatever the, the standards of the day were. And Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. The smallest, the youngest son, out in the fields. Doesn't sound like Samuel yet knows for sure, though by process of elimination, <laughs> let's hope so, if that's the only other one Jesse has. So he sent for him, verse 12, and had him brought in, and he was... If you have Bible Works or some other program that allows you to look at a dozen translations at once, you ought to look this one up. Nobody knows what to do with the Hebrew. NIV says he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. That might be overly optimistic. The... uh, the expression glowing with health is, is some kind of Hebrew idiom that, that literally means he was red-cheeked. You know, like those British kids, they all have the big red circles on their puffy faces. <laughs> Terrible stereotype. He, yes, had some features who were apparently good-looking. But, but I don't think he was the uh, middle linebacker of the, the Bethlehem football team. I think of him as sort of like somebody in a boy band, you know. Cute. Maybe the 13-year-old girl swooned over him, but... Um, not somebody you would naturally think to put on the throne. Maybe the best translation was, he was a cute kid. But Samuel says, you're the one, rise. The Lord tells him and anoint him. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. In the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. We'll see that he plays the lyre. That's L-Y-R-E, musical instrument. We have a lot of people in our society today who play the other kind of lyre, but that's, that's not what we're talking about here. And he soothes Saul, and he kills Goliath. Amazing. This episode just ends with, and Samuel went to Ramah. He went home. The end. Where's the fanfare? Where's the public acclaim? Where are the gifts? Where's the confetti? Where's the parade in the capital city? Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, you can't do that. Saul's still in Hour. Every detail of the passage is not what you would have expected for anointing a king in Israel or anywhere else. 
So what's that got to do with us? I suspect some of us, some of you, some of me, (laughs) this part, (laughs) at times feel like losers. Sickness. The growing unpopularity of the Christian faith in this country. Not having the resources you thought you'd have by this point in life. Incredible polarization of our society. Been told this morning that people left your church, and I can't help but think that some of them were probably good friends. Some of you may well have been persecuted for your faith. Lost a job because you took a public stand about something. Not hired for something that you were qualified for because they knew you were a committed believer. Mocked, jeered, teased. I suspect as well that there are a whole bunch of people here They're the people who make up the backbone of any church who have learned to love the people who feel like losers. The people who, by society standards, really are losers. Because that's a big part of the gospel. Yes, (laughs) I preached this at my home church back in early January, and our well-meaning secretary, lovely person, makes way too many mistakes and things that are printed. It wasn't an anomaly. Left off the question mark. Lovable losers. No, no. The question mark was important. Is that all there is to say about David? Is that all there is to say about anyone else? David became, in time, a lovable winner. Mostly. Oh, yeah. A couple huge sins. And yet, still looking at his life as a whole, a man after God's own heart. How remarkable. And one day, in the new heavens and the new earth, David will be a perfect, lovable winner. In fact, probably the most important thing we should remember David for is nothing that he did in his life other than become a father, to a son who became a father, to a son who became a father, to a son, and eventually Jesus showed up. So we read in the genealogy in Matthew 1. He was part of the line to produce the Messiah, who was 
the world's greatest loser ever by worldly standards, crucified, maybe the most agonizing death humanity has ever invented, or at least it ranks right up there, rejected by the majority of his kin and people from his homeland, and yet, thanks to the resurrection, became an incredibly lovable winner, and yet many still reject him. When I turned 15, I had something much better happen to me than the demise of the 69 Cubs. I was invited by my best friend to a Campus Life Youth for Christ club in my high school, and I discovered a whole bunch of people, some of them even 16 and 17 and 18 years old, who genuinely took an interest in me. Seniors caring about freshmen, sophomores, unheard of. At least I thought. And I was introduced to Jesus. Oh, not for the first time. My parents had brought me to church, but for the first time by people about my own age for whom Jesus really made a difference in their lives. I hadn't seen that at what I later learned was a very liberal, mainline Protestant church that I grew up in. And I discovered that the people I had thought were so cool (laughs) weren't really the cool kids after all. They weren't really all that put together. I was meeting the cool kids, the kids who cared about losers who learned to love them whether they were lovable or not. I learned that we are all lovable losers. Losers because we can never come remotely close to measuring up to the standards God requires of human beings, but lovable because God loves us and offers us a way out through Jesus Christ if we follow Him. I learned that in Him we can all become lovable winners, at least partially. But one day we can be perfect, lovable winners. Would you pray with me? Father, if there are any here this morning who don't know you, would you help them to think seriously about the story of David and maybe be drawn to the stories in the Gospels of Jesus? not based on what others have said Christians are or what they've seen some Christians be, 
but based on the real thing, the real thing in Scripture. And there are others who know you, but still feel, even in small ways, like they haven't accomplished what they should have, what they wanted to. Relationships aren't what they had hoped for. The future is more uncertain than they ever thought it would be. Help them to realize that in you they can be and already are lovable winners. And to look on those problems from an eternal perspective such that the glory that is to be ours makes every issue, however huge, in this life pale into almost insignificance in comparison. Help us live this week not with a cub's psyche, but as the lovable winner's that you have taught us and are in the process of making us become. We thank you ahead of time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.